Yeah, welcome to Sully Dog here talking with the Blues Roulette's uh, Jimmy Hocking. Yeah, new album recorded live uh, with the Blues Roulette team uh, with Jimmy Hocking, a uh, fabulous Australian uh, guitarist and singer. Yeah, we talked to Jimmy about all things uh, Jimmy the Human. And uh, how they got to uh, put this little album together is a good thing. Hi, uh, Jimmy Hocking. Uh, great to have you on the uh, Salty Dog Blues and Roots, mate. Salty, nice to be on the show. How are you doing? Fantastic. Really appreciate you giving me some uh, time and um, talk about um, new work you've been doing with Blues Roulette. With a new EP, we're very, very excited about it. Actually, it's been a little shining light in these lockdown times for us. That's right. You're one of a few that have been game enough to um, get stuff out into the marketplace. But um, it's it's a great EP. H- how did it come about? This thing. Well, it was. Uh, I, I'm gonna. I, I keep saying to Ben, it's going to be the greatest accidental record of all time that I've been involved in, because right at the very start of this lockdown. Uh, ben, through one of his connections, had an opportunity to do a live streaming uh, performance uh, yeah. out in Marysville for the council out there. So it was part of their art program to be streamed to their website. So Johnny Tessarero, the great man, and uh, Ben Wicks and myself uh, went out there to play um, maybe 45 minutes of unrehearsed blues to nobody, just to a film crew in a hundred-year-old hall out of Marysville, a very nice old hall, one of those old sort of, I guess they're church halls, those old places. Yeah. And um, look, it was just something that we did on the spot. It was, I keep saying it was freezing cold. It was, it was gloves and coffee at, at midday. Yep. And uh, we uh, we did our set, had some fun. And then, uh, you know, Ben said to me afterwards, a couple of days later, I don't know when, he said, listen, I've been here, I've heard the rushes of that, that live stream. And the sound is fantastic. He says, he said, we really caught something, you know, captured something special. Yeah. And um, he said it to me, and of course I enjoyed it, but I'm hypercritical of my own playing all the time, yeah. um, which is not great news. But um, I was excited by the sound of it, but not so much by my playing at the time. But uh, over the course of the next couple of months, I, I detached myself from the project enough to hear it with fresh ears. And <laughs> I realised that somehow... We just captured one of those great moments in playing. Yeah. You know, we, 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 we were playing mostly my originals, which I, I chose intentionally kind of generic songs that we could just fly off the seat of our pants with. Yeah. But the nature of blues roulette is that that's what they like to do. You know, they want to just jam it out. We had a great time. And, and now I'm, I'm actually really excited about the EP. It sounds like a great moment capture, you know. Yeah, it's it's a great live. Um, some great in sen- I call it in sedentary playing. Is that right? I saw you right there. <laughs> we there's could some, have used some in sedentary action in the freezing colds. Uh, yeah, uh, yeah. There's some, there's some great runs there in the middle of the blues. Some blues tracks. I don't know if those scales or something out of another song, but it's sort of, you, you get that sort of um, live jamming environment where all of a sudden stuff comes out that you you forgot you had. Well, that's the beauty of it, you know, and that's. 
I think that's the goal of, uh, of uh, you know, uh, jam bands. There's a big jam band scene in the States, of course, and, yeah. and things like Blues Roulette, where they're, they're hoping to to stumble across those moments uh, of kind of musical intuition that we all come together and, 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 and get. And, you know, I, I enjoy that environment myself very much. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I guess it's it's uh, it's the origin of blues too, isn't it? Absolutely, it is. And you know, uh, there's there's a reason that that people um, you know came to settle on certain formulas of chord change is because that wasn't the essence of it. The essence of it was uh, being creative beyond that and on top of that, and and getting to play your instrument in, in, in you know in, in, a, in a spur of the moment kind of way, and you know. It's it's easier said than done, but I think we've we've really got a, a great moment here. You know? Yeah, no, I I think it's great. And you you've played with uh, blues roulette at the uh, the catfish in Fitzroy, haven't you? You've been I have. Doing... So I knew I knew uh, the drill. I knew what 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 it was all about. I've done a, a number of them now, and I always love going and doing it. And every time I'm there, I I, I keep saying to the crowd, Ben said I could do whatever I want. You know. <laughs> So, <laughs> don't nail me up. <laughs> That's what he told me. So uh, yeah, so it's a great excuse for me to um, cut loose. Yeah, no, it, it's great. I remember the a great um, quote from John Mayle in an album he put out years and years ago. I always remember it. He, he used to talk about a band, and he said, "We're searching for that moment of gold." Yeah, and, and, um, I mean, it's so it's so true. It's it's yeah. it's not even funny. It's just really what it is. Yeah, yeah, and every now and then you get anything. Wow, can you recreate it? This is the, um, or does it matter? That's the, the well. Key. This is the thing. I, I think that some bands, you know, with all due respect, probably reach a burnout point where they have, you know, uh, played so much in that environment, they, they just start doing things by rote again. You know, and you yeah. almost need to mix it up with maybe fresh people or or something to try yeah. and refine the, that that. Um, uh, kind of uh, that lost note, you know. That's what we look searching for. Yeah, no, for sure. And um, I mean, I take my hat off to bands that stay together a long time because mm. it doesn't get, uh, you know, on Groundhog Day a bit. Um, you know, every gig. Well, it depends on the band. Depends on what they're trying to achieve, you know, and what they do. But, but yeah, I mean, hey, I've been in the Screaming Jets for the most part of the last twenty-seven years as well, and uh, you know. Um, it's a roller coaster ride of of ups and downs because because we all grow and evolve and change and yep, you know yep. the people that were there 30 years ago might not be because you can't keep the gang together it's just you know it's a long time yeah and, uh, and it's it's just the human condition it always amazes me uh, the rolling stones have stayed together so long but um maybe that's Mick Jagger's personality yeah. well maybe and, and and i think that um I think maybe in that situation where the band becomes an institution and sort of a machine in a way, and I don't mean that with disrespect because I love the Rolling Stones, yeah. you know, but but I think that you you find a way to do it where you you, you accept your role and, 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 and that's what you do. And I think in the context of, of the Screaming Jets, for example, that has happened to us as well. Whether we've spoken about that or not, isn't it? You know, I know here's what I do in that band. So yeah. I, I, I walk in, I don't look for other things to do. I don't try to get more of my songs on albums. That's not what I do. I do this, you know. Yeah. So yeah. I come into it and, and here we are again. We do it, you know. Yeah. Do you have any favourite jam bands in the blues tradition? Mm, the blues tradition. Well, you mentioned John Mayall. It's funny that you should because 
Um, I've I talked a lot about the effect of the first Blues Breakers album on me in the actually I discovered it in the eighties, yep. so uh, it's ironic. But 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 you know in my in my um, experience, if you didn't have a friend who had those albums in their collection or 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 heard them like in the day. There was a there was a void there in in the seventies to the early eighties where they weren't around, yeah. and so kids like me, you know, I, I left school in seventy nine and I started playing in bands almost immediately. You know, I was only uh, exposed to what was accessible. There was no internet, of course, yeah. so it was, uh, you know, it was the case where I discovered that first Blues Breakers album when somebody gave me a car tape of it, yeah, and. Uh, you know, even though I, I'd already discovered Frank Zappa and Eddie Van Halen, but to hear that Blues Breakers album, and, and the significant thing for me on that was that uh, John Mayle didn't sound like John Lee Hooker. You know, he sounded like a white guy, like me, basically, yeah, yeah. singing in a blues band. And yeah. I, I was all over it. I was like, hey, I could do this. You know, this is, <laughs> you know, this is for me. I mean, we, we lost Peter Green, of course, in recent times, and, and I talked about this and discovering Peter Green via that vehicle of the next album yeah. but once again it was the 80s for me was a really eclectic time I, I thought it was a pretty crappy time in music for the most part but for me personally i discovered a lot of these older things from the late 60s into the 70s i discovered them in the 80s yeah yeah we're listening to uh jimmy hocking uh talking about um his uh, background with Jump back to an earlier John Mayer and the Blues Breakers album, All Your Love, Mono with Eric Clapton. An inspiration for Jimmy, he discovered in the 80s. I had the same experience um, with Ry Cooter. I Somehow I missed him in the 70s. Yep. I discovered um, all his vinyl in a second-hand record shop, um, probably early to mid-80s, and yep. um, I was all over it. I never left it alone, but I don't know how I missed it. I mean, I was on to other things in the 70s, but I missed Ry Cooter. Well, I reckon I, when I was at school, a, a, a buddy of mine's dad was in a record club and he used to uh, regularly bring home new releases that we would sit around and, and this is in the days when somebody had a, an amazing hi-fi and you'd go around to their house just to sit there and listen to it, you know. Yeah. And we would listen to all sorts of stuff and I discovered many great players uh, and albums in that period. But I, once those records went back to the club, I didn't have them. You know, my dad, I grew up in music, but we had what we had at home, you know, like, so, so I, I do understand it now, like looking with a bit of retrospective about it all. It was just that our, our information was not so quick then about that stuff. You know, we, yeah. we poured over guitar magazines and fan magazines and, 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 and that kind of stuff. And, and record shops and music shops were, were a place where you would hang out to learn 
what was going on in music. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Oh, that, that's for sure. I mean, uh, my experience in Discurio and all those other places earlier, but I'm a bit older than you, so I'll, I'll drop those names. Um, <laughs> I remember those. <laughs> I, I left school at 69, so there you go. <laughs> oh, you know, I didn't realise you were that much older than me, to be honest. Uh, uh, 68, going on to 69. Wow, yeah, all right. Well, I... Um, I, I think that... Uh, I edit that out, by the way. <laughs> but it was another... It was also... That was the time when I left school that we discovered even Triple R and, and PBS in the early days yeah. and, and the shows that, that, that they had. Um, you know, I listened to the radio every day uh, at that time. It was really one of my yeah. outlets. I woke up to it. I went to bed to it. And yep. there was a number of programs, and even even Billy Pennell's program back in those days, the yep. album show he used to do, they were great sources of new information for guys like me. They really were. Yep. No, that's for sure. Now, uh, now, tell me, Jimmy, was it the blues you started off with and you ended up in rock bands, or was it rock bands and you ended up in the blues? Well, it's none of the above, I'm afraid. <laughs> it's, it's a story that will have me losing credibility all over the place, but... You know, you've got to remember, I grew up in a musical household. My dad was a brilliant piano player and arranger and conductor. My yep. mum was an opera singer. Wow. Uh, so as far as we were concerned, the doors were wide open about musical tastes. There was no um, there was no barriers about what you were allowed to listen to or like. We didn't. It wasn't football. It was music and it was all uh, accessible. Yep. But I, I grew up hearing my dad playing... Uh, show bands and, and big bands and TV bands. So he played in the Billy Hyde trio, so they played like a jazz set. Yep. And uh, I discovered early uh, an eclectic mix of things like the Beatles, uh, uh, Chuck Berry, and uh, also um, guys like Les Paul. Les Paul, the actual guitar player Les Paul, yep. was one of my introductions to good guitar playing. I heard those early Les Paul trio records at home, yep. and even though I couldn't play any of it, it, it was mind-blowing to me how we could whiz around the guitar like that. So when I became, you know, coming into the world of playing live in about 1980, um, the stage for a guitar player who was 16 or 17 years old as I was, was that you were going to be a rock player because that was the climate of the fashion. And, um, you know, I, I wanted to play all, that fast, all those fast licks that I'd heard Les Paul do, and everybody immediately thought I was like a metal shredder because that's, uh, you know, that was what people thought I'd, I'd drawn those influences from. You know, it was from Gary Moore, yeah. who I love, by the way. Yeah, but, yeah. Um, but it wasn't. It all came from the Les Paul book, and oh. I was just doing it with a dirty amp, you know. Yeah, yeah. But the early 80s, I discovered the blues uh, uh, for real. I used to see Dutch play. He played locally in the 70s around my neighbourhood, and I'd often go and see him play. I was a big fan of Kevin Borich. I'd see Kevin play. Sometimes he'd play with Dutch as well. Yep. And, um, uh, you know, and I discovered all of the appropriate albums, if you will, you know, in that yeah. time as well. So I think that what I was was I was a guy in the rock scene, but I longed to do a blues thing but didn't think it was doable for for me. I didn't think that I could sing like that. And there certainly wasn't a scene that I could really go and pursue a blues career in at that time. Yeah, I read somewhere you said that uh, an agent or someone advised you that you'd ruin your career if you started doing blues <laughs> albums. Is that right? It was called, quote unquote, I was told it would be professional suicide. <laughs> 
about uh, keeping it all together. Yeah, talking to uh, Jimmy Hocking on Sorry Dog Blues and Roots. Let's hear a track from the Blues Roulette, uh, the new thing just out. The Golden Rule. Yeah, the album's out uh, on the Bandcamp, 1st of November 2020, so you can get it there, uh, Turn Hounds. Yeah, let's get back to Jimmy. So, uh, um, that's happened to me a number of times in my career, I can assure you of that. But uh, I actually, um, when I had the Jimmy the Human band going, which would be you know, 88, 89, so even at that point of the 80s, uh, I started wanting to play some of my blues songs that I'd written uh, in that set. So we would often do one or two in the encore. And I I remember at the time the record company were like, what are you doing? You know, like this is, you know, they they berated me about approaching this um, so-called retro, they call it retro. They said, we're not not releasing retro music here, we're releasing contemporary music. And... The comedy of those conversations stays with me because I remember once one of the heads from EMI telling me, you know, you've got to do, we don't want to do retro music. Look what Craig McLaughlin's doing. And Craig, of course, had released Mona, which is an old blues. I'm like, do you guys even know what you're talking about? That's right. And and then I I recall one time they gave me a few different examples, you know, try and dress like Axl Rose, blah, blah, blah. My record contract was torn up by the second album uh, for Jimmy the Human. It was all over. I wouldn't play ball with all that stuff. and Not because I was being obtuse, just because I thought uh, this was the process. I'm writing like this and this is what we, you know, we can turn it into a a rock song. It's the blues and and rock and roll were were cousins as far as I was concerned. And, of course, it all washed up. And the very next year, the biggest Australian album of the year was Johnny Diesel and the Injectors, which effectively is a blues rock album. Yeah, yeah. I was like... You guys haven't got a clue. Like it was uh, to me, it was the birth of me being an independent artist because there was nobody to talk to who had a, who had a clue about music in the industry. I felt, you know. Yeah, well, similar stories from Renee Gay. Um, yeah, she said told, told me that you know she wanted to get back into blues, but they said no, no, no Mother's Day records, thanks. And um, <laughs> <laughs> I jokingly said I'll produce the next album, but we've never done it. <laughs> Just bring in, bring in the blues and and um, and uh, well, the scene's changed though, hasn't it, from the eighties to well, now? Yeah, and that's it's it's great to see that you know, and 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 now I get particularly enthused 
when I see, you know, we've got a bunch of young up and comers, you know, the Ramble Band kids, the Charlie Bedford, you know, yep. Jesse, all, all these people, even Sean Kirk and people like that who I've watched, yep. you know, grow into musicians. You know, the fact that they discovered this music form and have kind of made their own, put their own stamp on it. I'm so enthused when I see that generation and the knowledge that they have of the genre too. You know, it's really yeah. a great thing. And we have, of course, the Blue Societies now. We have the festivals. And, you know, I couldn't be happy. It's why I, I realised I could do it at a certain point. I thought the yeah. scene is evolving enough that I could do this, you know. And it's interesting that um, all artists have to do a blues album to prove they've got credibility. I mean, Robert Palmer's <laughs> last album was blues, even though it's terrible. <laughs> Bob Skaggs has been doing fabulous stuff the last few years. Well, he did a lot of blues over the years. You know, yeah. you can read about him doing blues early in his career. And, and I'd probably suggest that, you know, guitar players, by and large, fall in love with the blues because it gives them a freedom of expression, you know. And so yeah. so when they're coming up to the scene, of course, they cut their teeth trying to emulate Red House or whatever it is because they've heard it yeah. on a Hendrix, Hendrix record. And then yeah. they go backwards and discover, you know, um, Willie Dixon and you know, whoever it will be, Muddy Waters at the start of it all. Yeah. You know, I discovered T-Bone Walker kind of late in the game in some ways, but he became my guy. It was like, you know, I just, I know it wasn't Chicago blues. It was this other kind of blues that had like some jazz turnaround and stuff. Yeah. And that, that harmonic richness, I loved it. And, you know, he's my go-to reference still, you know. So I was, was going to ask you um, in my list of questions here, um, who are your influences? <laughs> but you've, you've covered a lot of them anyway, but... I'm catty, Sophie. I, I can't help it. Yeah. So, so I mean, is it apart from Mail and T-Bone Burnett? Um, T-Bone Walker. <laughs> Walker, sorry. Yeah, yeah. Reason, I, I was thinking of T-Bone Burnett um, because of, I guess the same bloody name. <laughs> well, do you know what? Yeah, of course. Of course. Like me and Jimmy. And he also was a music producer on that TV show National, which was interesting. Yeah. Ironically... When uh, John, uh, when um, uh, um, uh, Mick Fleetwood came out to Australia in the eighties as well with his band Mick Fleetwood Zoo, um, it was Rocky Rocky Burnett, T Bone's brother, was the guitar player in the band. Right, and, uh, and I like I opened for them, you see. So uh, yep. at the time, so I got to meet Mick Fleetwood, and uh, and it was Rocky Burnett. I'm pretty sure. That's fantastic. Um, yeah. So let's go back to the. Uh, if you have to name, you know, three big influences. Who are they? Well, are we just talking blues or whatever you want? Well, I, I can't, I, I couldn't escape the influence of, of my dad because he was, you know, my dad was listening to Art Tatum records and those kind of things at home a lot. And that really rubbed off on me. And uh, Les Paul, I mentioned, but the, you can't name three because, you know, I, I, when I heard Stevie Raw, Ray Vaughan play, I went and saw him in 84 at the concert hall. You know, it, it flipped my wig. Uh, but, I, but Kevin <laughs> Morrick had that effect on me when I saw him play, yeah. you know, in the late 70s. And, um, uh, but, you know, over the years, I, I met B.B. King. And, and to say that B.B. King's influence on me, uh, you know, it, it's huge. But, you know, the phrasing, what he does, people don't hear it in my playing, but I do. You know, I know, I think... Yeah. You've got to learn the butterfly tremolo. You've got to know, know these things, you know, the turnarounds that B.B. was playing, the, the way he's sang and articulated his guitar in between the vocal lines. You know, B.B. King was the king. Yeah. And I said to B.B. King, who was your favourite guitar player, and he told me T-Bone Walker. 
And that was, I can assure you, I went down to the, the record import <laughs> shop in Hampton the next day and said, do you have any T-Bone Walker records? They had some best of. And, uh, you know, I, 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 I could see, you know, I lapped it up, you know. And, but, you know, I mentioned the, the, the Blues Breaker album and by default Peter Green, who I didn't even know was the new guitar player in the band when I heard the second album because I just had it on a tape. There was no, there was no yeah. uh, text about all that stuff. So, you know, my, my journey through and back into the blues has been certainly eclectic. But as a musician, I think that you're allowed to be that way because you're, you're out there absorbing, you know, musical influences and ideas and, and, and really you go through a stage, especially when you're young, where you're a complete sponge for ideas. And because of the way I grew up, I didn't have to belong to a club musically to to feel comfortable. You know, I, I could, as far as I was concerned, if I had a great, I heard the Dwight Yoakam album when he made a first, his first record, and I, I loved it. I was like, I'd never really played country music, but that guy Pete Anderson on the guitar was a genius, you know. Yeah. So, you know, that's that's been my way. There's, there's stuff on, on the uh, Blues Roulette album. It's just called Blues Roulette Jimmy uh, Hocking. Yeah. No, no hyphen, but I like that. Um, you've got a track, My Father's Son. Now, yep. that's about your dad? Yeah. Well, you know, if you, my, we lost dad last year, unfortunately. But, um, you know, if you'd met dad and met me in the same room, you would see very clearly, uh, you know, that the apple didn't fall far from the tree. Yep. You know, senior musicians and dad worked with all the good people all, all my young life. You know, I, I'd answer the phone and say, hello. And someone would go, Kevin, blah, blah, blah. And they start talking, I'd say, it's not Kevin. They go, ah, oh, do you know you sound just like your dad? <laughs> you know, and I, I even would, would then put on different voices. I'd be, hello, you know, yeah. and it was the same. And I look at pictures of my dad, the way he waves his hands around and, and I just do all that stuff, you know, and, and, you know, it's an interesting lesson in nurture and nature. Who knows where it comes from? But, yeah. but certainly because my dad was awesome, uh, you know, I, I'm very lucky that, to, to be my father's son is actually a great thing for me, you know. I got up this morning, my life was on the run. Got up this morning, my life was on the run. Yeah, but I'm not worried, I'm my father's son. When I was a boy, I could put the guitar down. I was a boy, I couldn't put the guitar there I couldn't help it, I just love the sound I love it still All right. Yeah, I have my fill Women who don't understand Yeah, I have my fill of women who don't understand me. So I, 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 you know, I, I proudly wear my dad's influence on my sleeve. So um, did that give you confidence or did it made you uh, have to struggle to, to step up to the mark? Well, that's an astute comment, I've I got to say, because a, a bit of both. For, for the longest time, uh, the bar was so high in our family about how to play and what you should be capable of doing that you know it took me years to even think that I'd arrived at any kind of place because I couldn't do what my dad and his contemporaries did yeah. and especially when it came to things like reading music and stuff they could they could sight read fly shit you know like and they yeah. could 
play it like they knew it. So, you know, people talk about people who read music. There's all sorts of degrees of that. There's people who read like me where I can read the page and then kind of learn it and, you know, I'm, I'm like a child. But then there's people who can really sight read and they read it like a language and it's not difficult for them at all. Yeah, that players like they that. read. Yeah, yeah players yeah. they read. That's right. Yeah, my brother and, uh, a, um, a, 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 a Marseille in piano fort, whatever they call it. Yeah, my yeah, mother yeah. had ambitions for me, but he, he, he went, he had the London degree in music. And he could sight read. Um, and Well, that's right. When you see it for real, so when you see that level of it, you realise that what, you know, what, what people refer to as reading music isn't even close. No. You know, this, is, this, no. Is a, this, is a, this is playing it as quickly as you can see it with feeling, with definition, with intent, all of those things, you know. Yeah, so. yeah. No, it's a language and... Um, the blues has not always there because a lot of the blues players um, aren't oh, taught. No. Um, it's emotion, uh, it's feel, absolutely. Um, it's intonation, it's uh, playing it behind, not in front. Yeah, I mean, there's there's a million nuances to playing blues, and I already know if somebody's not going to be no good from the, the rock and roll world when they say something like, "Yeah, but blues is easy," or you know, they say, oh, you know, it's only blues, you know, or it's just the blues we're going to play. Uh, I already start to get have fear because I know that, you know, people who, who, who are dismissive of, of the uh, of the intricacies of blues don't really understand it, you know. So, Jimmy, Jimmy, um, do you have favourite guitars and amps uh, set up? Oh, sure. I'm a complete well, nerd, Kelsey. Like, yeah, well, I mean, I don't, I'm, I'm risky going down this path, but you feel <laughs> Something you like for the blues? How about that? <laughs> well, I'll tell you, I, I do have different guitars for different uh, ways of playing. That's certainly true. And of course, when I, I I grew up playing a Les Paul, that was kind of my first real good guitar. I had bits of tellies and strats and stuff when I couldn't afford to buy anything. There used to be this shop in um, Russell Street, and I would uh, Clements Music, and I'd yep. go in there, and they would sell all these cheap Japanese strats and tellies and. I'd go in there and see one where had a better neck than the one I had on it. And so I'd buy the guitar, take it home and unbolt that neck, put it in my guitar and bolt it back together and go sell that one. So I did that for years. <laughs> and, I, and I think that I, my first kind of playable guitars, I got like a Washburn guitar, which was, was okay. And um, eventually I saved up and I bought, I sold my Telebitza and I bought a Fender Lead 2. They were brand new at the time. They came out about 1980 or 81 or something, I think. And I played that for a while, but uh, the knob bugged me because it was in the way, you know, and and I, I wanted to buy a Strat actually in those days and, and I'd saved up my money. I worked in a music shop and I worked in a factory. I had all this stuff going on and I saved up my pennies and I had 650 bucks and uh, there was a Les Paul for sale for 625 bucks in the city and I, I went in uh, thinking I really wanted a Strat, but I, I'll try it out. And I played that, that Les Paul and, and it was... It was all over. You know, yeah. I, I have a couple of other guitars. I love the Paul Reed Smith guitars. I love a 335. Yamaha made me a nice 335 too. And you know what, though? The, the, the way, it, the shape of it, the feel of it was just right for my body. I'm lanky. It was it sat right on me. And um, But there's a couple of different kinds of pickup configurations in Les Pauls. You might have humbuckers, which I, I like to use for the rock bands. Yeah. But then there's the mini humbuckers and the P90s, which have a bit more transparency, like a single core pickup, and that's my go-to blues uh, guitar. I right. love the, so that's kind of you know I, I use the minis and the P90s for most of my blues stuff now. That's really it. Okay, yeah. I mean, uh, 
Jeff Atchison was big on that uh, Les Paul too. He had that gold he won over in Austin, well, didn't he? Well, you know what, me, Jeff and I are great mates, and um, we have a when we did a tour together oh, a long time ago. Now he and I, when we first really got to know each other, we discovered we had a lot of similarities. Uh, we discovered we had the same tattoo, for example, <laughs> in those days. He's, I think he's done some more work to his, but we had our tattoo on our right arm, uh, unbeknownst to either of us. I think right. our first job was the same job in a plastics factory after we wow. left school. And we both had a Les Paul gold top, which is fundamentally about the same age. Like they were the same, wow. very similar. So, so my one is very similar to Jeff's old Goldie. And I, of course, had called mine for years Goldie as well. And you're kidding. <laughs> <laughs> Shoot you right down. Yeah, talking to Jimmy Hocking about the Blues Roulette album, the new thing on the block. Here's a track, uh, Boom Boom. Old standard. Well, I love to see you strut up and down the floor. When you're walking like that, I see you walking me now. I love that talk. That baby toe. driving around talking about it and it's like really that's you know it was really it was kind of odd at the time and yeah there was a lot of uh um strange similarities about about that i must remind me about that too because we were both it was almost like we were making it up but it was true yeah and, um so yeah my the two gold tops i've had most of my career uh one's a 69 uh, like same year as Jeff's, I think and the other one's a 73 so and i've had them since the 80s i've, I've had them since they were affordable, you know. <laughs> right, great. Well, that's, that's a story. Um, we'll need to see a, 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 some sort of twin exercise of two goalies on stage. Well, we've when we've done our blues showdowns, we, we often do that, you know, like uh, our guitar showdown, because because it's so kind of cute, you know, we both pull out these old guitars, you know. But I think yeah. Jeff's um, likes the PRS now because it's much lighter. Yes. Uh, and I have one of those too, which I really love. It's a great guitar. I use it in the jets more often. But uh, when I pull out the old gold top, and it's, here it is, it's, it's never far away. Yeah, it's, beautiful. It's, it, it reeks of vibe, you know. It's, it's, yeah, it, yeah. It's, it plays itself. Oh, every <laughs> time I, I pick it up and play it, I think, you know what, I've got guitars that I really love, but, but if I had to just take one, I, I wouldn't be unhappy. You know, this, could, this could be the yeah. old girl, so... Um, you know, yeah, it's funny about guitars. I mean, I'm not a guitar uh, guitarist backside, but I, I did get a guitar off um, Sean Riley, and it's an old um, um, uh, law of you know what do they oh, call yeah. it the, the, the law lost guitars. Yeah. Oh yeah, right. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and, and it plays itself. 
as much as I can. But anyway, <laughs> yeah, you've been I doing that. You've got a man Lena a guitar in the background. I can see. You're oh, that, right. That, um, oh, it's probably not good for that's uh, an original Ovation Legend. Oh yeah, I know those guitars. Yeah, Make yeah. Light Back, which yeah. most people don't like, but I love the sound of it. I no, I, I played them for one of my earliest acoustics were, was an uh, Ovation, a Balladier. I had one for quite a long time. Yeah, no. This no, the a, first plug-in acoustics you could get. This is an Ovation Legend um, model 1717. Um, it's had a history. It's been stolen. It's been the cash converters. Quanta smashed the um, the soundboard off the off the back, and I had uh, real guitars in Glen Iris fix it. Anyway, it's got a history. Yeah. And I love it. It's got a good sound. But I'm, as I said, I'm a, I play a lot of harp because I'm uh, not a guitarist backside. But uh, well, I like to play. I play a little harp because because I just I love the sound. But I'm not a harp player's backside, so I. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, so have you been doing any writing in lockdown, or just been doing family yeah. stuff? I have. I've actually done a number of recording sessions for different people whilst in lockdown, including the Jets. Of course, the Blues Roulette thing. Ben Wicks really was the man driving the Blues Roulette uh, EP, yep. so he did a lot of the elbow work there. But uh, I've done like another acoustic album, which I've had been good, had in the back burner for about the last several years. I got to confess, but I've kind of brought that across the line. Briggsy's mastered that for me, so there's a bit of something there coming up. Uh, and yes, I have been doing some late night writing, but because my kids are young, I have to wait for everybody to be in bed. Or and now they've gone back to school. We've been back at school for the last you know, nearly a week now. Yep. Yeah. So it's changed our day to day landscape considerably. Uh, so my plan is to actually write a bunch of stuff. And I've got to say, I'm so excited with the sound of this Blue Roulette EP. I wouldn't mind writing a few new songs and doing another one in the years to come, you know, like doing another yep. five track EP or something like that. So, so you never know. No. Well, let's hear something from that, um, give the human albums and old stuff, uh, some mandolin and everything else. It's a shame I can't tell you Though you told me I was just a friend I'll pretend I don't hear you Cause I feel like I've known you Since the dawn of time And I wanna be with you Wish I knew what you feel for me Cause I could drown in this ocean it's got a great. It's got a. You can sense the uh, the, the passion in it, which is a, which is the, the whole objective of a live album. Of course, yeah. And, and a lot of them, um, and it's well recorded too, which is really unusual. So some of them those don't don't work. Well, considering, well, thank you for saying so. Considering that the outcome was not to record a live album on the day that we went to Marysville, it was to just get good sound for a live stream. Uh, it's quite remarkable how well it has come up. There's been a bit of post-mixing um, and remastering uh, that Ben has had a team of people working with to do that. But nonetheless, you know, it, to me it's got that juice of, of the band really playing together and there's nothing too overbearing in it. We sound like a combo, you know, and I, I really think it might – I keep saying I've done a couple of live albums over the years and this might be my favourite live recording thus far, I think. That's great. The only thing it hasn't got is that uh, Jimmy Hocking jumping uh, four feet in the air with the guitar. <laughs> well, I'll tell you right now, we were on the an old that old stage in the hall was that that slippery, um, uh, you know, Tasmanian oak looking stage, 
And I, yeah. I, I, the shoes I had on, I, I, I didn't want to walk too fast on the stage for fear of slipping over on it. So there'd be yeah. no, uh, there'd be no jumping in that in that that hall. I can tell you. So. Yeah, talking about Jimmy Hocking, uh, Sorry Dog Blues and Roots. Here's another track from that uh, new blues roulette, Jimmy Hocking album, called The Home Cooking. Sometimes I don't know what to do You gotta live, you gotta love You gotta make a little music too I need some real home cooking So you're still doing the jump? I was thinking you did it last year at the Peninsula Blues Festival, didn't you? Well, I, I can't tell you, Salty, because I haven't done a gig for, you know, six months. So uh, um, uh, I, I guess I am. Uh, the only other one I know who does that, and forgive me, is Dave Hole from West Australia, though. He's getting on now. Yeah, Dave's getting up. And yeah, I met Dave in the States when I was there early in the game. And uh, we hung out one afternoon at a festival. He's a great man, a killer guitar player. I mean, you know, over the top slide, Dave Yeah, Hull. unbelievable, yeah. Just great. Unique, unique. Absolutely. So I don't think he's jumping around so much now. Uh, no. But I can feel, you know, I'm 57 now. and. Uh, I have a background in uh, some martial arts uh, over the years as well, so that's that's where all the jumping and kicking actually comes from. <laughs> but uh, but you know it's not getting any easier to do. I got to tell you, so uh, we'll see well, how much longer I can keep that one going. It's very impressive. Um, you only see it every now and then. I, I did I did take a, a photograph of Dave Hall in midair and over in Adelaide, and I saw um, at the International Guitar Festival that was about 70, 2007. Yeah. And he, he ripped into the air. I thought, what is this? Unfortunately, I had the camera. Yeah. And I saw you doing it again, uh, um, you know, eight months ago or whatever it was, 10 months ago. Yeah. And I thought, well, that's pretty, still pretty impressive. Still pretty well, impressive. That's good. I, I, I can still do it, but I've got to, you know, there's, I, I've had one of my knees fixed already. <laughs> so, uh, <laughs> you know, about we'll, see, we'll see how long it's going to go for. But I, I, I try to keep it, keep it together because my kids are young and stuff too. And I, I'd love to uh, get out there and train with them if they, you know, if they well, they I guess I'm going to make them do it until they tell me they don't want to do it anymore. But uh, you know, that's kind of my little immediate plan to, to grow old gracefully, but try and stay fit while I'm in the process. Yeah, my, my plan too, but my knees are telling me otherwise. And, um, I have to do uh, I have to go and get them checked. I'm hearing um, you. People say, "Why are you walking like that, salty?" I said, "Just mind your own business." <laughs> well, a couple of years ago, I um I I tore the medial meniscus in my right knee, which is one of the little pads between the joint. And it was so badly, they were going to repair it. You know, it was a sports injury. And uh, the surgeon shook his head. <laughs> so they just cut it out. So I don't have uh, I don't have part of my knee in my right leg. So the fact that I can still kick my leg up, let me tell you, is actually- Pretty uh, impressive. Very it's, impressive. It's pretty good. Now, is that, is that a couple more things? Um, I'm sure the uh, punters want to know is, how come you were called Jimmy the Human? You know what? I finally had a better story. I um, uh, when I, about 84, 85, um, I was playing in a rock band, and uh, you know, there's lots of there's lots of phases I've gone through, and my earliest bands were were very influenced by kind of like that Frank Zappa, 
fusion kind of thing. We want to, want to be a hard rock band, but we wanted to be a little bit more interesting, blah, blah, blah. You know, keep young, I'm trying to be complicated. And yeah. uh, <laughs> alongside of that, I started playing the folk cafes in Melbourne. And one of the first places I played was a place called Fat Bob's Cafe in South Caulfield, where I met Fiona Boys and, yep. and, and a bunch of the people I still see even now, William Hutton, those kind of crew. Uh, Ricky Vengeance was the top dog there who we, we lost a couple of years ago, but he was a great um, mate of mine. And um, I started doing this kind of folky set there. I guess I guess we'll call folk because any acoustic instrument was called a folk instrument in 1985. Yep. And, um, you know, I didn't have a real name. I, I they, you know, I was nobody, so I would just, who's playing? Just say Jimmy on the board. So I would go playing down at Fat Bob's and I would just write Jimmy on the, on the, on the uh, who's on board. And the owner said to me, look, you can't be just Jimmy. You've got to be <laughs> something else in Jimmy Hocking. And I had this fan, fantastic notion that, that Jimmy Hocking would be the rock guy and, and Jimmy would just be this guy in the folk cafe. So we started writing different names on the board. You know, it was, it was, I wrote Jimmy, the guitar player, I think on, on it then. And he said, no, that's no good. So I, I write a different one every week. Jimmy, the skateboarder, Jimmy, the idiot, Jimmy will, is playing, you know, like whatever. And yeah. then one, one night I did a rant about not being labeled musically and saying that I just wanted to play music for everybody. You know, it didn't have to be folk or blues or rock. It was just music, you know, just be music for humans. So yeah. I wrote Jimmy the Human on the board. And this is the one that stuck, of course. Yeah. Now, up to 1988, and I get my big rock and roll break when Bob Spencer breaks his arm in the Angels. And yeah. I'm recruited to do the Live Line tour. I'd been doing some sessions. I was making a name for myself doing that, so it seems. And um, Doc Neeson got wind of my story, exactly the same story. I tell him the story. He says to me, that's your stage name. That's, that's fantastic. You've got to use that. <laughs> so... Every night on stage for the next two months, Doc walks out and, and introduces me against, not against my will, but not without, not with my blessing either, yeah. as Jimmy the Human. And by the end of that tour, <laughs> I was simply Jimmy the Human. I've only done one album as Jimmy the Human, but it's, yeah. you know, it's, it's, it's gone on forever and ever. And I first went to New York in about 99 and I walked into the Sidewalk Cafe and Latch, who was the guy that books the Sidewalk in, in New York, says to me, hey, Jimmy the Human. <laughs> so i don't know just stuck well it's a great story and i remember seeing it outside the old rsl which is now apartment blocks you know tonight jimmy the human and i used to say who the f is that like, who's this guy the human it didn't even have a good blues or folk or sound. <laughs> it sounded like some sci-fi thing so it was a strange, but you know, come the late 80s, everybody had a wacky name. You know, it was part of the, you know, there was Nick Barker and the Reptiles, there was Johnny yeah. Diesel and the Injectors, and I became Jimmy the Human and Spectre Seven. And and that was, you know, uh, it was the era for that kind of yeah. wacky name. It's definitely an alien thing, I think. Yeah. You know, shapeshifters, they call them reptiles. <laughs> <laughs> Something like that. Yeah. Um, you play blues mandolin. We won't talk much longer. I know we've got a lot. We've covered a lot of territory, but you play blues mandolin. Yep. Um, who, who's your favourite? Yank Rachel or Rachel? Is what his name is? Lank, Rachel Yank, Grosso. Rachel. Uh, well, Rachel. Rachel. Grosso, there's very few blues mandolins really to 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 work with on this question because yeah, I, I mean Yank's gone now, of course. 
Uh, yeah. I've met Rich on a number of occasions. I first met Rich in Memphis, and then he came out with Fiona, of course, uh, a few years right. back, and I went and had a jam with him at Port Ferry. But Rich is kind of the Rich is the figurehead of blues mandolin, I think, globally. I think that's fair to say. Yeah. But my buddy Bert Divert, who lives in Sweden, he, yeah. he's uh, he's another a good friend of mine who I see online, and we might even do a little project together as well, Bert and I. Yeah, he sends me his stuff, which is great. Yeah, he's a good man, and he uh, he came and did some gigs with me oh, several years ago now. But when I first took to blues mandolin, I, I had a mandolin. I I uh, I had discussion with Jeff Lang about playing the mandolin, and he was using it in the context of like how Roy Gallagher used to do bullfrog blues, and he was doing something like that in his act. Yeah. And I I wanted a travel companion, so I wanted something that I could take on the bus, basically. Uh, you know, I didn't fancy the ukulele at that time, and I thought maybe the mandolin looked like a little jazz guitar and I could retune it like a guitar or something. But of course you can't, you've got to play it how it's, how it's intended. Yeah. So I, I kind of did some study on some bluegrass um, licks, but I wasn't any good at it. And then when I discovered Yank Rachel, um, it was a light bulb moment, this is for me. I mean, it was like, it was kind of like putting Angus Young licks to the mandolin in a, in a yeah. sense. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, so that became a gateway for me to explore that. And um, I, I'd say, look, I mean, to answer your question, you know, there was a couple of great players. Johnny Young's another one. Uh, got a different namesake here, of course. Yeah. But um, Yank is probably the guy. Yank is the Chuck Berry of blues mandolin. That's, so you've got to kind of like tip your hat to Yank. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's the same tuning as a violin, isn't it? So um, That's correct, yeah. Just can... double just double strings. Like it's like a 12-string violin. Sugarcane. Harris um, on that electric violin is pretty similar. Oh yeah, that's right. And you know what? Back in you know a certain point of history, we we identify the guitar as such a blues instrument because of the great figureheads we have from slide guitar and and and, and regular guitar, I guess. But you know, if you had a mandolin in the house, you just played that. If you had a band, you just played. These people didn't go to the music shop and go, yeah, I think it'll be a blues guitar player. I better go and buy a guitar. They just played what was ever was around exactly so it's really no surprise when you start to discover that there might have been a lot of people playing blues on a variety of instruments that were just simply not recorded yeah. so um you know it's it's just the way no the history panned out there's no rules until no. the blue asks that but there are no rules a broad church very broad church exactly and that's the part of the beauty of it too yeah fantastic well, look, I really appreciate your time, Jimmy. We've covered a fair bit of material, and we started off with the blues roulette, Jimmy Hocking without the hyphen, um, <laughs> which is a great um, EP, I think we'll call it. Six yeah, tracks. Yeah, six tracks, which is pretty good for an EP. So, yep. yeah, we're really happy with it. We're going to, we're kind of like officially launching it on November the 1st. Um, you know, advanced copies, are, you can book a copy by contacting Ben Wicks on his Facebook page or through the Blues Roulette page. Uh, yep. But I think it's going to go to Bandcamp eventually as well, and we'll have copies when we come back to playing live, of course. And it's, it's yourself on guitar and vocal. Yep. On bass is Ben, ben Wicks. Wicks. And on drums? Johnny Tesserero, or Johnny T as I call him. Johnny T. So yep. it's the it's Blues Roulette rhythm section. Um, with Jimmy Hocking out front, so that, that's going to look good in, on paper as well as in, uh, in, in sound as well. Let's hope. <laughs> yeah, that's fantastic. Uh, so I really appreciate your time, Jimmy, and uh, talking about some of your career and um, uh, music and um, and chance to uh, give a push to the new Blues Roulette. So thanks for coming on board with the Solid Dog Blues and Roots. No worries. Thank you. Thanks for your support. Hi, it's Jimmy Hocking here, and you are on Salty Dog Blues and Roots. 